Father, we do indeed give you praise today for all of your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for the physical things that you bless us with, knowing that everything good flows from your hand. But Lord, we know that there's so much more to this life than money and possessions. But Lord, we commit these things to you. This is the means by which we live. We know that they're given to, to our, our hands from your hands, Lord. And so we uh, honor you and worship you in our tithes and our offerings. We ask that you use these to do great work throughout the world. But Lord, I pray that even beyond this, that you would give our hearts even more generosity, that we would be givers of our very lives as we live out our days to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please remain standing, if you will, and turn to your Bible, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. If you remember, last week, Paul was kind of rescued from the crowds who were seeking to cause him harm. And if you'll oblige me, look up into chapter 21. Let me pick up in verse 37, and we'll read through chapter 22. And verse 37 of chapter 21, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus." And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizen for a large sum. And Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would cause us to see in your word all that you have for us today. Open it, open our eyes, open our hearts, and do your work in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We are in this final stretch of the book of Acts. As we come down toward the end, the events seem to pick up and gain some steam, and the stories kind of blend together through the chapters, which is why we had to go back and kind of unpack a few of those verses there at the end of 37 so that we could get the, uh, the context for what was happening here in chapter 22. You know, we've seen God do incredible things in a number of people's lives. Uh, incredible works as the church has grown from this initial group of 12 guys, disciples, ragtag group, to now this um, just you know, widespread throughout the known world growth of the kingdom of God. We've seen the stories of the lives changed, dramatically changed. I think Paul would be kind of top of the list there in terms of dramatic changes that we see here in this chapter. We saw it a little bit in chapter 9. Uh, this story of his conversion. And Paul, you know, he, he had gone to Jerusalem. Some had warned him not to go. We looked at this last week. He had gone and he had encountered this mob. Uh, Jews, it says, from Asia, probably Ephesus, had accused him. Some based not on the understanding of what he was teaching. Some based on false accusation that he had taken Trophimus into the, to the, uh, in the temple. And they went after him and they beat him. And so the tribune, the Roman tribune, saved him from the crowd. So you can imagine Paul is looking a bit disheveled at this point, not really recognizable, probably bruised and beaten, probably dirty. And the tribune doesn't know who he has. And he thinks it's this Egyptian, kind of this escaped fugitive that had gotten away. There was this Egyptian that led a revolt against the city of Jerusalem 
who had claimed to be a prophet and uh, led many astray. They tried to capture him. He managed to get away. And the tribune is thinking, maybe this is him. And we don't know this, but I kind of imagine he was salivating just a little bit because this would have been a real feather in his cap had he captured this guy. And Paul says, no, that's not who I am. I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. And maybe it was because of that shock, because most commentators believe it was very unlikely that he would have been allowed to speak. But for some reason, the tribune allows him to speak. And when Paul does, he opens his mouth and he speaks in Hebrew. And this shuts down the entire crowd because no one was ready for this. What Paul is about to do is explain what he believes and why he believes it. He's going to give a defense and a reason for the hope that he has. And we're told to be ready ourselves to give, to be ready to, to, to give a reason for the hope that we have. So I think this is very relevant for us today. In verse 1, Paul begins by addressing the crowd, brothers and fathers. This was a phrase, a common phrase that was used. It was, identify, it was used to, to identify who Paul was. He's saying, I am your brother. I'm your son. Um, I'm one of you. I'm a Jew. And he's about to explain that further. But it was also a sign of humility, a sign of respect to the Jewish crowd that he addressed them in this way. And then he asks that they hear the defense that I now make before you. Hear my defense. And the word here that's used that's translated defense is the word apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. It's the explanation and the defense of the faith. It's not an apology. Paul's not giving an apology for what he believes. He is defending what he believes. And he's doing this by laying out the facts of the case. Not only to help his hearers understand, but Paul's desire is that they be drawn to Jesus. Paul wants to be winsome here. He wants them to hear the gospel and to be drawn to the Savior. We live in a day when truth is seen as relative. Many people say things like that. Well, you know, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. You've heard statements like this. And of course, this is meaninglessness. When someone says something like that, ask them, is that statement true? (laughs) Um, Truth is something. By definition, it is that which is actual. It's outside of us. We don't get to determine what is true or not. True is just what is fact. And although the world around us may be attempting to redefine this, it doesn't change what is actually true. Truth is what it is. And we can talk about this in terms of, you know, gravity or something, you know, we throw something off a building, it falls to the ground, you can't really argue with that. And that's true and it may be helpful. But it's also true in the moral realm as well. No one lives as a relativist. We try to live as moral relativists, and I speak of broad culture here, but no one really wants to live as a moral relativist. And the evidence is all around us. We've seen it in the news this week. Things that have come out of Pennsylvania. Is there any relativism about that? I mean, no man is a relativist who says, or you say to him, I'm going to hire you for $15 an hour, and he works 10 hours, and then you go to pay him, and you give him 20 bucks. 
If you said, hey, what's true for you is true for you, but for me, $20 is, is what you deserve. No, you agreed to pay me $15 an hour and I worked for 10 hours. No one wants to be a relativist. No person is a relativist, to, a relativist rather, who you go and attempt to take the property from. She says, no, this is my new iPhone. You can't have it. And you say, well, it's, you know, what's true for you is true for you, but for me, it's my iPhone. I want it, and so I'm going to take it. No one wants to live as a moral relativist. And as I mentioned in what we saw in the news this week, when it comes to our children being harmed, no one wants to live as a moral relativist. Truth matters. And people recognize this whether they're willing to acknowledge this or not. And so Paul, in his defense of the faith, is laying out his case based on the facts. Now, as we look at these facts, they're familiar to us because we've already seen this story recounted to us in Acts 9, where Luke retold it. But here, Luke's giving us a first-hand account of Paul telling the story. It's in the first person. And we're going to see it one more time. In Acts 26, when he goes before King Agrippa, he tells the story again. But in each of these accounts, there are differences, there are nuances. In this account, there's some additional information because Paul knew his audience. He knew who he was speaking to. He knew his context. And this is the first thing that I want us to understand. We need to know our context. We need to know our audience. So point number one, Paul says, I'm a Jew. Raised and educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. Now we know Paul was born in Tarsus, but he came to Jerusalem as a young man. This was typical. Uh, Young boys in the Hebrew tradition are educated in Hebrew and in the faith. If they had access to go to Jerusalem, that would have been a luxury. Paul evidently had this access. Now keep in mind, most of the Jews who were stirring up the trouble were actually from Asia. And so the fact that he had been raised in and educated in Jerusalem raised his status just a little bit among his hearers. He was a little more authentic having been raised and grown up in Jerusalem and certainly for studying under Gamaliel. He had been shaped purely by Jewish thought and presence growing up. I mentioned Gamaliel. We talked about him in Acts 9. He was a well-respected Pharisee, a leader among them, a teacher, to have studied under him would have given Paul even further validation. This would have been, you know, like a pilot saying that he had flown under Chuck Yeager or studied under Chuck Yeager or a a photographer saying he had studied under, you know, Ansel Adams, um, a singer under Pavarotti, this kind of thing. This would have given him some credibility. He had studied under someone who was respected. And he adds in verse 3, according to the strict manner of the law and our fathers. Paul's saying, I'm not just some guy or even some Jew. He said it differently in his letter to the Philippians. He said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is what he wrote there. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's saying, I'm the real deal. 
Now, the way that that comes across as you read that, especially if you read only that, is it just sounds like Paul's a braggart. But that wasn't Paul's point, either in that context in Philippians or in this context in Acts. And we know that because the very next word that he wrote in Philippians, very famous, but whatever I gain I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings. What he's dealing with in Philippians in this letter is the same thing that he's dealing with in this episode in Acts. He is giving a defense because according to Jewish understanding, Paul should have been safe. He should have been safe. He had it all. He had all the credentials. And what did he call them? Rubbish. Rubbish. This is what he's trying to have his hearers understand. He wasn't safe. He needed a Savior, just as they needed a Savior. And that was his desire for them that day. He wanted his hearers to know the magnificence of Jesus, the grandeur of His love, and the overwhelming wonder of His grace. Point two, he possessed a zeal for the Mosaic law that led him to persecute the way. He's just stacking up the credentials here. He's saying, not only am I a Hebrew of Hebrews, but I actually went after these Christians. He not only spoke against the way, but he persecuted them. He went after them to the death, he says, as if to emphasize how far he would go in his persecution. Not only that, he was seeking to imprison men and women, going great distances, even going all the way to Damascus. That's where he was headed when all of this happened. No mercy. Paul was a full-on zealot. And so with that background now, he lays down the surprise of what happens. Point three, he was converted on his way to Damascus. He was going there to arrest Christians. And instead of that, Christ arrested Paul. He captured him. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as Saul is retelling the story, you can almost imagine the force of this first-hand account, how compelling it is. No doubt their blood is beginning to boil. They see where this is headed. But he's kind of spent some of his equity talking about who he is and who he's studied under and what he's accomplished so that they're willing to listen just a little bit longer. And they continue. Paul not only knew his context, he knew his audience, but he also had a clear testimony of Jesus saving him. And I think this is important for us to understand about apologetics, that we are not arguing a system of beliefs, but we are giving a reason for the hope that we have. It's personal. Our lives have been changed. It's not just assent to some ideas. Now, don't misunderstand me to think that I'm saying that we have to have an exciting testimony. Many of us don't. I don't. I was saved as a, as a young child. I had a friend once who was also saved as a young child. He used to say something like this. 
Uh, I was caught in a life of sin and destruction, murderous, angry, seeking myself only. And then when I turned four, I was saved. Yeah. <laughs> and I've reused that a few times uh, because it's kind of funny. We do hear people with amazing testimonies and praise God for those amazing testimonies. But praise God for your testimony too if you were saved as a child. For what he saved you from was no less or greater than what he saved someone else from that we consider a little more exotic and exciting. And what he's preserved you from is worthy of praise to him. God's protected us. The point is that it's your testimony, that your life has been changed, that you can speak to the power of the gospel that has transformed you and that continues to work in your life. This is so important in the work of apologetics. Point number four, he mentions Ananias, a respected Jew that affirmed his conversion and calling from God. There is so much in this one statement. This could be a whole sermon in itself. I promise it's not going to be a whole sermon in itself. But I want us to look just briefly at what Ananias, or what he said about Ananias and what Ananias said to him. You remember Paul had been temporarily blinded by the light. He had to be led by his colleagues. And when he comes to Ananias, God uses him to restore Paul's sight. And he says of Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of, by all the Jews who live there. In other words, hearers, you can't argue with what Ananias said or did. Ananias is the real deal. Now I'm going to tell you what Ananias did. He's building his case. Listen in verse 14 what Ananias said to him. The God of our fathers, very specific Jewish language there, appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. We see the conversion of Saul right here. And there's so much in this, but let me just mention what, um, uh, what I think the Jews certainly would have noticed from this statement from Ananias. Beyond the God of our fathers, certainly linking who he was talking of back to the fathers, to their traditions, appointed you. In other words, Ananias is saying, Paul, you are God's anointed. And no doubt the hearers heard this. He mentions three things. To know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. I'm confident that the Jewish hearers would have heard the overarching theme in those statements. This prophetic, priestly, and kingly roles of the Messiah that that Paul was pointing to in Jesus. That Jesus was the Messiah. Further, the name the Righteous One, used throughout the Old Testament of God, but specifically used of the Messiah in places like Isaiah 53 and that Paul's message of Jesus as the Messiah was actually God's message. This is what Ananias was saying. And Paul's recounting this now to his hearers. And as I mentioned, it's quite personal, because here is where Ananias calls him to repentance and belief and faith, calls him to be baptized after professing faith. Paul was personally saved. He wasn't saved by his credentials. He wasn't saved because of all the things that he had done. Paul had to cast all of those things aside, falling solely on the mercy and grace of Jesus. 
Paul had found the Messiah. Well, really, the Messiah had found Paul. But Paul is relaying this by laying out these facts so that his hearers know and understand who Jesus is. And he's pointing them to the fact that in this temple that you're arguing that I'm speaking against, and he adds this, that he came and saw uh, Jesus revealed in a vision. So Paul not only needed to know his context and audience, Paul understood that Jesus saved him. He had a personal testimony, but he also knew God's word. He knew who God was and what he had revealed. You could say a little further that Paul had a systemized understanding of what God's word teaches. Paul knew theology. And if you think that theology is to be reserved only for pastors or for professional academic theologians, um, let me encourage you not to think that way. We need to know what the Bible teaches. You know, there are many people who read the Bible every day. I've got family members who read the Bible every day and their lives are fruitless. We know people like this. People that could ace a Bible trivia game that you played with them, but they don't understand redemption. They don't understand the Trinity. They don't understand heaven and hell and grace. All of these things that are clearly taught in Scripture. Paul knew his theology. Point five, he experienced a vision, as I mentioned, in the temple, the very temple that the Jews accused him of speaking against. This part is new information. This wasn't in the account that we saw in Acts 9. And here Paul recounts a vision and a message that Jesus spoke to him. And you may wonder why he included this, but again, it was another point of validation of who Paul was and what his commitments were. He wasn't speaking against the temple. Paul had a respect for the temple. It was where he went to pray. And it was while he was praying then that he had this vision. And he shows us that during this vision, he kind of argues with Jesus a little bit because Jesus says, I'm going to send you far away. And he says, no, 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 I'm I'm good, Lord. Um, These people, they're going to see, I persecuted the way, I took it all the way to death, they're going to accept me. And what is Jesus' response to him? Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it's at this point that the crowd erupts, which is very interesting. This is what made them so mad. It was the mentioning of the Gentiles that caused them to explode. Think of all that he had said up to this point. And yet this is what upset them the most. Even though the Old Testament, all the way back to Abraham, you will be a blessing to all nations. That there was a message through the people of God that they were to be a light to the nations. And there was a hope for the Gentiles far off. All the prophets spoke to this. And yet they had missed it. And they had turned their faith into some kind of exclusive club that they wanted to let no one else into. It shows you what was in their hearts. Now while the reaction was directed at Paul, and the flashpoint was the mentioning of the Gentiles, the real issue was Christianity itself. It was the exclusive claim that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. Offensive to them and offensive to many still today. Because people want their own beliefs. People want their own system. They want their own way. It's ultimately about our heart's desire for autonomy. And if you don't think this about people, go serve in the nursery. Because it is revealed from the youngest of ages. And then we just learn to kind of mask it as we get older. 
oh, we submit to authority and we do grow up and mature a little bit. I mean, those who don't usually end up having a real hard life or end up in jail. But, and we'll do it for civil purposes, mainly because it benefits us. We don't want crimes committed against us. But when it comes to submitting to moral authority, our hearts are in rebellion. And we see this evidenced, and I speak of our culture at large. And so we need to be ready to give a defense, to give a reason for the hope that we have. So, in closing, let me highlight three things that I said that I want you to consider as we leave today. First, we need to know our context. We need to know our audience. This involves knowing people. Knowing people involves relationships. Relationships involve time, and relationships are messy. Okay, can we just set that one aside? <laughs> no, no. We, we've we've got to put the time in. We've got to get in the messiness of life to know where people are, what they're struggling against, not to shut them down that you don't believe what I believe, we're not going to have a conversation, but being willing to care for people and to be concerned about people so that we can speak into their lives. It includes knowing the culture. It includes knowing what the world values. We have to be students. We have to be paying attention. We have to know our context and our audience. Secondly, we have to know God's Word. And I'm going to put theology in with that because I think theology, although it's really in its purest form, just an understanding or a knowledge or a study of who God is, theology is a systemization of what the Scripture teaches in the context that I'm using it right now. In other words, we need to not only know the content of the Bible, but we need to know all that the Bible teaches so that we can explain to people what the gospel really is, what depravity really is, what redemption really is why it means that we were created for God's glory, what that really looks like. We need to be able to speak to these things. We need to be ever learning, not for knowledge that puffs up, but for knowledge that leads others to the Savior. And that's the third point. Know your Savior. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you, if you feel overwhelmed by the thought of apology, ah, Apologetics, that's not me. I know people that can do that, but not me. I'm, I'm just, you know, kind of a plain Jane. Don't like to get into all that heady stuff or whatever. No, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to be able to speak to the power of the gospel in our lives. But we also need to speak to the one who saved us, who indwells us, who loves us, who gave his life for us. And this is evidenced in our humility that's rooted in love. The apologist that doesn't show humility rooted in love is kind of missing the big point in a big way. Think of John's words. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Jesus said it this way, by, all, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Giving a defense requires knowledge and words, but it's to be done in love. It's to be done in love. And let me say this about words. Someone somewhere a long time ago said something like, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, while I appreciate the sentiment of that statement, meaning that our lives do need to back up what we say, the gospel is words. It is a message. It is good news. By definition, we have to use words. So don't let that be a cop-out for your life. 
To think that you don't ever have to speak, that you just have to live a good life in front of people. Yeah, our good works are to give glory to God and draw others to give glory to God. But we need to be ready to speak the truth. And our hypocrisy, other, another thing people will use, our hypocrisy doesn't, doesn't change the truth. Talking to my son this week about driving, trying to give him some instructions. You know what he reminded me of? Dad, you do that all the time. <laughs> and I said to him, son, doesn't make it right. This is why I need a Savior. I won't tell you what I did. <laughs> Don't let hypocrisy disqualify the message of the truth of the gospel. It doesn't change the reality that you and I need a Savior and that your neighbor and your family member and others need a Savior too. But it's to be done in humility that's rooted in love. Let me close by saying this. I said it already. I'm going to say it again. The only way that you and I can do this, if this feels overwhelming, hear this. If you hear nothing else today, the only way that you can do this is to abide in the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in Jesus. Walk with Him. Talk with Him. Listen to Him from His Word. Trust Him. Love Him. Abide in Him. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about the world around us and as we think of those who don't know You, our hearts are burdened. We want to see people come to a saving knowledge of faith. And yet it can feel overwhelming to think of, what do I say? How do I say it? Or I've already tried and they won't hear me. Lord, would You cause us to see through what we've seen in Paul's example here in Acts today, but really in what you've done in our lives, what you did in Paul's life, what you've done in each of our lives that you've saved us, that that gospel hope could get translated through our mouths and through our lives as we live to draw other people to yourself. I pray that we would live lives that are winsome. And then, Lord, that that part of that is, Lord, when we fail, would you cause us to repent quickly? that others would see that we repent, that we don't have it all together, that we need a Savior too, and that you would use that to draw people to yourself. Above all, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to abide in you. Draw us near to yourself. I pray that you would do that even in this moment today for each person here, that they would know the love of the Savior. And I pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that you would draw them to yourself today and save them. And I pray this in His mighty and powerful name. Amen.